and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited, where we'll cover one of the many reported cases of reincarnation, so we can bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go too much further, I'd like to thank Raphael Crux for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. In other cases, we've covered the possibility that past life memories can leak into our current lives and cause traumas and phobias that can damage our emotional well-being and happiness. But can the effects of a past life be so strong that they can leave us feeling like we're not even in the right body? K.M. Werstein has very kindly agreed to join us and discuss this fascinating topic. Today we are talking to K.M. Werstein about a case that has a very interesting aspect with regards to reincarnation and gender. So I'd like to welcome K.M. Werstein to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Marilyn. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I've been wanting to talk to you for ages because I just love you to pieces. I think you're amazing. Well, the feeling <laughs> is mutual. So you're actually connected with Signs of Reincarnation, which is the forum that we are both in, and you're one of Jim Matlock's students, I suppose, but you're now a researcher in your own right. Yes. My first encounter with him was on the Facebook group that we've got, which is growing crazily again. It's, we are we are increasing members um, hundreds a day. But back then it was it was very small and intimate and just researchers and a few people who found us. And I heard about his course and I took his course. And I should say why I, I did in the first place, I have my own past life experiences and my my own past life issues. And so I was just interested, you know, I want to find out more about the science, the scientific end of it. I'd never known that there was a course for it before it was new at that point. And so I took it and I thought that I was 100% convinced of reincarnation before I took it. But I realized as I went through the course that things kept amazing me, things kept astounding me. So obviously I hadn't quite been at 100% and I think I was by the end of the course. It really is wonderful for letting you know about what actual facts are out there about reincarnation based on cases, based on credible cases, usually of children, well-investigated, well-checked out. And so I got to know Jim. Now I'm helping him teach that course. I'm the discussion leader. That's my official title. And I, I'm doing research on my own right. I have a paper already out that was published in 2019 and another one coming in more projects. And I also write a lot for the Science Cyclopedia. I don't know if you've mentioned it on the podcast before, but just in case you haven't, I'll put in a plug. It was put together by the Society for Cycle Research in London, England. And um, it's basically a one-stop shop for everything you want to know about things parapsychological, including reincarnation. And I have written more than 100 articles from when I started in 2016 for that, in, including one that is about reincarnation and sex change, which I'm sure I'm going to be referring to. Uh, so that's me in the reincarnation aspect of my life. Yes, that case that you're referring to, I think, is the one we will cover today. And I'll get you to actually basically run through the case, if I may, because you actually covered it in detail. So it starts off really as a case by Ian Stevenson. Yes, it was. Yeah. And he was given the information by someone who basically passed the story on to him. And then he went and spoke to the young lady and her mother. Yes, he did. And, and would have spoken to quite a lot of other people. If it was a typical Stevenson case, he would never be satisfied just with the subject with the mother. He would talk to the father and sisters and brothers and uncles and aunts and anyone who had any information about it. He was very thorough in his work. He'd interview 30 people if they were available. That's amazing, isn't it? According to your site, he traveled to Nathul in Myanmar. And he interviewed the young lady. Her name was Ting Ong Mio. She's often known as Martin, but as yep. uh, KM was saying, that is actually the feminine address 
whereas she actually has other issues because of her past life memory. So the way this case originally kind of pans out is that, I don't know if people are aware of this, but during World War II, Burma was occupied by the Japanese and they had to live among the sort of the rural villages and they kind of interacted with them a little bit and they tended to be pretty harsh, but occasionally there were friendships that sort of came up among them. And one of those was with a food seller, a street food seller called Dor Ai Tin, and she became friendly with a Japanese army cook and was doing business with him and exchanging recipes. So the Japanese army were located in the village, and so the bombers actually flew over often and bombed the village because of this. So it's an interesting case, isn't it, for a lot of reasons, because she had announcing dreams as well, didn't she? The mother did, yes. Yeah. The announcing dream she had is that her friend, the Japanese army cook, he had gotten killed. He had gotten strafed with bullets by an allied plane. And so this woman who had been the army cook's friend had a dream of this man following her and saying he would come and stay with her and her husband. She had that dream three times and she recognized him as the cook. He'd been her friend. And actually at that point, she was not aware he'd been killed. So that's what we know as an announcing dream. Somebody saying, I want to come and reincarnate into your family. It happens quite often. And Jim actually wrote a piece on the Science Cyclopedia about that. The mother had the dreams, but she was a little bit frightened by them, wasn't she? She wasn't really comfortable mm -hmm. with it. And she told him not to follow her. And she wasn't aware at that point that he'd been killed. Mm-hmm. So she then went on to have children, didn't she? Were the other kids born before She then? did. I don't know where in the birth order Tin Angmyo was, but it doesn't really matter. How did it come about that the mother was aware there was something different about Tin Angmyo? Well, around the ages of three, four, somewhere in there, she began to be afraid of airplanes. So she'd cat her, she'd cry if one flew over her. And then she was asked what was wrong when she was crying uh, when she was about four. And she said, I'm pining for Japan. She said that she had been a Japanese soldier from the northern part of Japan who'd been stationed in this village during the war. And she recalled the death. He'd been near a woodpile, 75 meters from the house where the family lived. So that's a really close jump in reincarnation, 75 meters. Usually people travel a little bit more than that between lives. He was it's wearing short pants and taken off his shirt, which matches, I believe that matches what uh, the mother saw in the dream. Short pants and no shirt, yep. In the dream, he was wearing what he was wearing when he died. And uh, so that was the story uh, she told. And then there were more details about who he was. Uh, he had five children, the oldest a boy. He had owned a small shop in Japan before joining the army. He'd been a cook in the Japanese army and had died when the Japanese were leaving Burma. Uh, the airplane from which the strafing came had two tails. And I remember looking that up. Could have been either American or British. They both had planes with two tails. Now, usually what happens when you have this kind of detail about somebody in a past life is that you can find out who it was you can solve the case as we put it that was not done in this case so it actually stands as an unsolved case i actually think it could be solved it's very specific there's some good specifics in there we would just need to get into the japanese army records very very useful for reincarnation research because they're usually good. They're carefully kept. I was looking at that and I was quite surprised. I didn't realize until I was looking through the story before this that it hadn't been solved because when I look at where Natul or Nathul is in Burma, it's I gather it's like a little pass. So it's not a huge area. So surely it right. should be reasonably easy to pin it down to which That's right, which Italian. Yeah. Which, yeah. Yeah. Right. And he was a cook. 
Yeah. Right. If he'd just been a soldier, if he'd just been a soldier, lots of soldiers, right? But yeah. there are only so many cooks, yeah. right? It's a very specific. And he had five children, owned a small shop. Like these are good identifying things. There's actually several Stevenson cases that I think could be solved with either modern technology or having contacts in the right places. And it's a project I'd like to work on maybe someday. <laughs> Way down on the queue, though, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, hopefully someone will hear something like this and start doing an investigation. You never know. Anyone out there in podcast land have connections, know, knows how to uh, read and write Japanese? Yeah, you can help us out. That's right. That's That'd right. be good. I'll just do a little sidetrack here. There was uh, a Stevenson case in which a child gave a name of a village and Stevenson couldn't find the village. Like he asked around, you know, how do you get there? And nobody seemed to know. And just for the heck of it, I typed it in on a Google Maps and I found it. Oh my God. Really? I found it. Yes, really. Yeah. And, it, and it's tiny. Like it's like a handful of buildings. I could really see why he didn't find it. Oh my right. God. But this yeah, I was amazed too. But this is the thing with it. This is what I find absolutely fascinating about reincarnation cases now is that there's so much information out there on the net that wasn't there when these cases were first starting getting looked at. The facts are going to mm -hmm. start coming out that are actually yeah. verifiable now because we've got so much more information. That is true. I think little mm -hmm. things that we thought were not provable would just pop up because there's so much out there. To bring it back to this one, she actually did exhibit quite a few of the standard reincarnation things, didn't she, with food preferences and things yes. like that? Yes. Yes. Didn't like spicy food. She liked to eat fish, especially half raw. You know, every Japanese person is going to yearn for sushi if they're not getting it, right? Can't argue with sushi. Sushi's so awesome. Oh, sushi's fabulous. Uh, <laughs> uh, she couldn't cook for the family because of her aversion to using spices and hot chilies. She just needed a little wasabi. That's what she needed. <laughs> That's wasabi. What she needed. <laughs> Free to the God. And that then... and pickled ginger. <laughs> yes, yes. And she was homesick. She was very homesick. She missed her kids in Japan. What? And there's maybe a xenoglossy angle to the xenoglossy is a term for a language that you apparently didn't learn, you know, whether it's mediumistic or whether it's from a past life. At an early age, she talked to herself and other children using words they could not understand. Unfortunately, there wasn't anyone Japanese around for them to ask, you know, what's she saying? And she had a little trouble learning how to speak Burmese. So, and then, and then there was the behavior sign that we are here to talk about, which was that she wanted to wear boys clothes. And I can totally relate to that because I had the same problem. So she actually dropped out of school when she was age 11, because there was a rule that girls have to dress feminine in that school. So she said, that's it. I'm not going. If I have to dress like a girl, I am not going. She was somebody who definitely had gender dysphoria, as we call it. It's like, I am in the wrong body. Um, you know, I am really a man. It was almost like a, this yeah. is who I am. I'm not going to be told I'm anything different kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that something that people who think that transgenderism is an ideology don't get. They don't think that gender dysphoria is really real. It's really real. It's really real. I can tell you from personal experience, but it's not just personal experience. So with her case, she wore clothes of men. She preferred male clothes. She used to sort of prefer playing with male toys and things like that. So before we actually get any further perhaps we need to define the terms in relation to gender and gender dysphoria so people think of transgender people as being the same as a person with gender dysphoria but there are differences aren't there you know that's a bit of a hot button it's a bit political these days but my feeling is that if you want to change so trans you know trans is short for transition right? Yeah. If you want to change your body or 
the way you are seen by other people, there's got to be a reason for it. You must have felt like you were wearing the wrong costume or in disguise as the other sex. The uh, ethic has now become that you are whatever you choose to say you are. Um, and, and that is something that we have needed. We have needed that. Uh, you know, when I was a child, there was no such thing. I thought I was the only girl in the entire world who wanted to wear boys' clothes, who felt, you know, inside I'm a boy. I really should be a boy and I should grow up to be a man. Now, when I see parents helping their kids transition, I'm absolutely stunned. It never ceases to amaze me because that's what I would have wanted, just on the strength of me saying it. Just, you know, really inside I'm a boy and having my parents respect that. I can't even begin to imagine. I was born in 1961, so early 60s, it just didn't happen. So that's something that yeah. the LGBTQ community should be very proud of because it's their yeah, absolutely. fight that's really given us the freedom to allow people to say, I'm different to you and this is who I identify as. doesn't really matter really what anybody else says about it. If someone feels that sense of identification, then that's who they are. And I don't think anyone's got the right to say, I feel differently about that or that you can't be like that because that doesn't fit the rules. Well, that's right. I mean, it's, it, you can't possibly be like that because nobody is really like that. You know, I, people who think that transgender is an ideology, it's like, oh, you're just choosing to say that. No, no, nobody chooses to feel like they're in the wrong body. Who would choose that? Exactly. Right? It hurts. It hurts. That's why it's called dysphoria. It, that means suffering. So, yeah, it's it's frustrating. I think that's um, a good point to raise is that I think a lot of people think of trans people as being like RuPaul where they're very comfortable with their identity and they're quite, you know, happy and at peace in their bodies, I suppose you could say. But it's not necessarily that case, is it? It's, it's actually very different. I suppose when you're looking at kids too, having those memories and those feelings, mm -hmm. it must be very difficult. Well, it is unless your parents are supportive. <laughs> if your parents are supportive it's not so bad right but yeah i mean i i remember having royal battles with my mother about what i wore to school you know until until i got past the age that she could choose for me and then it was pants all the time yeah, yeah. and and still is to well into my adulthood now there's different degrees of it right i know You've got another question, which is, is gender dysphoria the same for everybody who has it? No, it isn't because there are different degrees. There are some people who, you know, I change, I have sexual reassignment surgery. I look exactly like the sex I feel to be inside, or I will commit suicide. I would rather be dead. Mm. So there are lots of people who feel that way. For me, it was a little bit more gentle than that. And it actually did go away for one period in my life, for one blessed period in my life. I was happy as a woman, as a biological woman. And that is when I was pregnant and then nursing with my one biological son. Because I did want to have the quintessential female experience. I did want that. I wanted kids and I wanted to give birth to one. And I guess it was because of the hormones and it was wonderful. It was like, oh, I'm happy as a woman. Yay, I'm cured, right? But as soon as he weaned, it came right back. Well, that's actually really so, an interesting point though, isn't it? Because you have past life memories as well. So do you, I do. Think, do you think you came back this time as female because you wanted to try those female aspects of life? No, I don't actually. I think it had to do with... Uh, well, this is getting a little personal here, but it had to do with, in a way, with holding myself back, with handicapping myself. There's wow. a, there was a kind of a self-sabotage thing to it, which sounds awfully sexist, but then I came from a sexist culture that time, and I came into a sexist culture because this time, <laughs> life was more sexist in the early 60s than it is now. 
and it's not entirely non-sexist now. I mean, there's still lots of sexism out there. Things have gotten much better for women, but they're not perfect. But I think once I got here and I was in an XX body, as I like to call it, meaning the chromosomes XX, right, instead of XY, is that I wanted to have the quintessential female experience, which is labor and pregnancy, labor, birth, and and nursing. And I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed all of them. You know, I think that's that's the part of me that loves to have experiences I've never had before. Uh, because all the past lives that I remember were male. Oh, that's really I don't remember, interesting. I don't remember any female ones. Yeah, it's not just one. So is it the same for everybody? It has different relationships with different people's self-images and self-esteem. So it depends on, you know, say manhood. It depends on what that means to you, right? You know, Mm. are you attached to your manhood because that means capable and competent and protective and all those kind of stereotypical male things uh or is it something else you know how does it relate to your self-esteem this can all be different depending on the psychology of the person and depending on the past life experiences if it comes from a past life i don't know whether gender dysphoria always comes from a past life I know that's what's assumed in countries that have reincarnation beliefs, and which is great because people don't get stigmatized, right? It's just, oh, well, you were the other the other sex in a past life. Okay, well, that's why. <laughs> no, nobody nobody thinks you're a pervert. <laughs> yeah, that's the trouble, isn't it? Because with regard to any of this, like with regards to any sexuality that varies from the straight paradigm there tends to be the stigma of pervert to it, doesn't it, there a little bit for some people, not for everybody. Yeah, well, it, it depends on some, some cultures, some belief systems. It's not, it's not just a little bit, it's a lot. You know, yeah. I mean, even in, even in the States, even today, people are getting thrown out of their families for being gay or trans. That's still yeah. happening with certain religious groups. So, um, yeah, I have seen know, some of that on the, especially lately, there's been, um, you know, more of that I think lately I'm not sure why but but yeah so the other aspect of it all too that I think people get a bit confused about is when we're talking about gender dysphoria we're not talking about sexual attraction that's right isn't it no we're not I mean yes that's right no we're not Uh, (laughs) (laughs) sexual attraction is about how you look at other people and what sort of other people you like to look at and think about doing other things than look right um gender dysphoria is about how you look at yourself so you can have a man who is absolutely gay would never touch a woman is only attracted to men and who feels perfectly manly perfectly masculine identifies as a man you know looks like a man has huge muscles like a man but a a lot of those gay guys are into uh, bodybuilding to a certain degree they don't look feminine at all and they're they're not trying to look feminine they're trying to look masculine and the same the other way you can have a lesbian who is you know wears makeup and does her fingernails and does all that feminine stuff and looks feminine because that's how she feels about herself i'm a woman because you can have someone who sort of transitions across who still then has like an orientation that would be considered say lesbian for example like you would think that with transitioning you're transitioning to sort of straighten everything out and become straight but that's not necessarily the case is it no no i mean i'm thinking of transitioning i'm psyching myself up to it and i'm not going to stop being bi Mm. i'm bi (laughs) that's not going to change that's right (laughs) right but uh, it is two different things. And actually Stevenson was a little bit confused about that. This hasn't been done. So this is not set in stone. I'm speculating here. I think that if you looked at it statistically, probably for transgender people, about 10% of them are going to be gay because 10% roughly of everyone is gay. 
So what you're saying is right. that if you look at the statistics, if it says something like 10% would normally be um, of another sexual orientation, that would be the same case in the cases of people who got gender dysphoria as well. It's not to do yeah. with regard to sexual attraction. It's a different thing completely. Is that what you mean? It is. Yeah. It is. Now, you know, I'm throwing out statistics here that don't actually exist, right? Like I'm saying, I'm saying this speculatively. I want to be very clear on that. I'm not looking at any actual studies that have been done. I could be wrong. There could be a study that completely refutes what I just said. Come out tomorrow. So <laughs> nobody quote me as if this is fact, okay? Out there in podcast land. They're pretty forgiving, I think. I'm glad we make that point because I think that's part of the thing that will make it easier for people if people have a better understanding of what it means to be gender dysphoric. But it's about how you look at yourself. It's yeah. about what you identify as, you know, yeah. as a man or as a woman, or even something that's kind of in between. You know, it is actually a continuum. I mean, they feel like they're not either way and they, and they're, and they call themselves non-binary now. Yeah. I mean, I have a friend who says, I've always sort of felt myself not as a he or she, but as an it. Oh, okay. You know, she's not objectifying herself. There isn't a term for somewhere in between that's like a human pronoun that's, you know, like he or she, but somewhere in between. That would be nice to add that to the language. I wish we could do that. That's actually a good point, um, isn't it? It's more a point of, uh, of working out the words we want to use to describe ourselves in a way. So with regard to the reincarnation cases... Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker have something like 2,200 cases of reincarnation. It's 2,500. Um, 2,500, are they? Oh, 25. Wow. Yeah, 2,500, uh, roughly. I mean, that's not the exact number, of which 1,700 are solved. So for 1,700 of them, they found the identity of the previous incarnation. Wow, I had no idea it was that high. That's amazing. People don't. You know, people think, oh, Ian Stevenson, oh, he worked on reincarnation. He probably got a few dozen cases. No, no, it's 2,500. And uh, not that's not just him, though. I mean, he had people helping him. And, of course, there's the other reincarnation researchers working at it now. Don't <laughs> but, so many to be solved. Like, I mean, you really only hear of a handful of them being solved. So people have the idea that reincarnation is largely unproved. And that's why you get so many skeptics. Yeah. 1700 out of 2500 what's that as a percentage i can't do that in my head a little more it's a little more than two-thirds like maybe 70 percent and and if if people wonder how stevenson managed to get so many cases himself it's like he didn't do it himself but he did most of them he worked for 40 years 12 hours a day seven days a week yeah he was amazing wasn't he Jim found that out from somebody who worked in the same office. Wow. Yep. Yeah. And he was lucky. He found a really good financial backer and away he went. And, you know, someday if, if there was such a thing as a posthumous Nobel Prize, he should win one. I really, really agree with that. We wouldn't be talking today if it wasn't for Ian no. Stevenson. No. He's the first one who really put it into the mainstream and said, mm -hmm. no, I am a man who is learned. I have done all the degrees and mm -hmm. I really believe this is what's going on. Yes, and he did very careful, thorough scientific work. Yes. You know, he would interview 30 people, I could say, and he'd do research to find out, to make sure that there was no way that the child could have found out the information through family stories or, you know, by acquaint being acquainted with the other family he was he was a scientist he was a scientist in the truest sense of the word he's a great man i really hope he gets the recognition he, he deserves i hope so too we're working on it with regard to the history of reincarnation cases of people with gender dysphoria it's not really easy to find information about those cases is it well you have to know where to look now, before the science encyclopedia, it was much harder to find. Now it's a lot easier. The science encyclopedia is the way to go. Like all the articles in the science encyclopedia, we name all our sources. We give all our sources. So the primary sources you can get to from our articles. 
so I gathered all this information from all these different sources that if you didn't have a science encyclopedia piece, you'd be, you know, where are they? Where, where do I find them? Um, yeah, because they're not, they're not actually easy to find if you're just looking up, because I tried before. I was thinking, which case do we, do we want to kind of do? And the trouble with Ting Ong Myo's case is that it's so good on so many levels for so many different subjects. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's almost yes, like the, uh, the classic case of just about everything you can want in a reincarnation case. I imagine it must be extremely difficult to find Western cases because we, we didn't talk about being straight or gay, let alone being gender dysphoric in the 50s well most of the cases are from other countries anyway so Halivanova and her co-authors looked at 469 cases so that was pulled from the database uh, for which the following information is available sex of subject sex of claimed pp that means the previous incarnation and information about whether the subject exhibits gender non-conforming behaviors so out of those 469 cases, 22.8% of them showed gender nonconformity. Coincidentally, not at all coincidentally, I'm being sarcastic there, 22.8% also have memories of being the other sex in the previous life. Okay, so then it's broken down by country somewhere. Where is it? So, so in this study, so this is specifically about gender nonconformity. It's not about gender dysphoria. It's about gender nonconformity. Of course, gender nonconformity can be a symptom of gen gender dysphoria. Uh, Sri Lanka, 29% of the sample. Turkey, 27%. India, 10%. Myanmar, 10%. United States, 10%. And four more countries that were under three percent each thailand lebanon brazil and canada which i thought was cool because i'm from canada and i didn't even know there were any canadian cases i'd never run into one and and other people i know i mean ones that have been published right yeah um so at you know so sri lanka turkey india myanmar they're the big countries 10 percent in the united states so it's okay turkey is sort of kind of in between east and west but it's mostly eastern Right, the majority are Eastern, mm -hmm. and uh, but as you say, that's so, because but, originally Stevenson kind of focused on the Eastern cultures because they were more accepting of reincarnation. Yeah, he figured he'd find cases there, and he was right. Yeah, I mean, it's not to say there's no cases in the United States because that's what Jim Tucker likes to concentrate on. He likes to do American cases. Yeah, it's changed. They're easier to find. Yeah. You just go on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's going in the forum. What, what stuns me when I look at it is just how many people say, oh, my kid started saying this to me yesterday. You know, like, yeah. I mean, it, it just yeah. makes you realize just how common it actually is. That's right. There, there are umpteen cases out there. Yeah, I think there's a preconception found. that, you know, oh, this is just some weird kind of hallucination that occasionally the odd people get or it's kids with too much imagination but when you look at it there's so many people who go oh yeah well actually it's funny you mentioned that when I was a kid I used to talk about something like that or yeah you know, it's and and if you're a researcher you know if you've if you've looked at a lot of cases if you've studied a lot of cases you know what the features are you know what they look like you know what they sound like mm. and these cases that you hear about, you know, in, in comment sections, when there's a magazine article about, you know, my child said this weird stuff, right? You go, oh, yeah, that's a reincarnation case. It's got this, 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 and this. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, you just know. You can see <laughs> right? the pinpointers, can't you? You can actually see the things that indicate the real ones. Are often you can pick a not real one straight away, I find. I think I can, too. Yeah. Yep. I don't give out all the details about how I can tell whether somebody's making a fake claim or not, because if you give out the details, then they know them and they can start trying. Them. Yeah, they can imitate right. them better. Yeah, I agree with you completely. <clears throat> but it's interesting, isn't it? With regards to the gender dysphoric cases, what's the earliest known case? Is this a sort of a thing that's been reported right through history or is it a thing that's just now sort of becoming more known about? Um, well, I would say now it's becoming more known about for all the reasons that we've been talking about. However, there are stories that come from history 
And I was looking through an article that Jim wrote for the Science Encyclopedia about cases pre-1900, because in the various literatures of various cultures, there are reincarnation stories. And so I was looking specifically for ones with sex change. Um, there's one from the 700s AD, or CE, we'd call it now, 700s from China. I'm kind of dubious about it because it has a kind of a mythological sound to it. She's talking to a goddess and then, and then she's reborn as a boy. So I don't know. I'll, I'll quote here. After the burial of the woman who died, she was 18 years old. Uh, the mother whose sorrowful thoughts did not turn away from the child collected the things the latter was wont to play with and put them away. So her, her childhood toys were still around. Before the usual months of pregnancy had elapsed, she gave birth to a son. Whenever anyone touched the concealed playthings, this child began to cry. Wailed also whenever the mother bemoaned her daughter, not stopping until the mother stopped. And when he could speak, he always wanted to have the toys. So they gave him the same name. But it's got a lot of mythological um, aspects to it. So let's go to the late 1800s with a book by a British author by the name of Fielding Hall. I believe his first name was Henry. And he wrote a book about uh, what was then called Burma, which we now call Myanmar, and wrote about a pair of twins who had past life memories. Both of them had past life memories as a couple. Now, I've done a science encyclopedia piece myself on twins in reincarnation. And what they found with twins is that they tend to have known each other in their previous lives. Right. So there's a very strong correlation there. They've known each other as another set of twins, as brother and sister, as couples, as business associates, as friends, like all kinds of different relationships. So this case fell right into that because they were a couple and then they became twins. The twins were boys, of course, the couple, uh, one of them was a woman. So one of them did change and Fielding Hall writes, the elder into whom the soul of the man entered is the fat, chubby little fellow, but the younger twin is smaller and has a curious, dreamy look on his face, more like a girl than a boy. That was published in 1898 when, you know, you could say sexist things like that. <laughs> it was more acceptable. Very true. Very true. You could get away with a lot more stuff, couldn't you, really? <laughs> yeah. No information about gender dysphoria, though. Hmm. So nothing there. And then there was another one that he had, same book, a seven-year-old girl who recalled having been a man who worked the dolls in a traveling marionette show. So she was a former marionetteer. Wow. And uh, she recognized a particular booth and dolls as her own, knew all about them, knew the name of each doll and even some of the words they used to say in the plays as the marionadier he would have had to repeat them over and over and over and over he would have known them really really well and that's the sort of thing that gets remembered mm. that that and traumatic traumatic things are the things that tend to get remembered from past lives which is um, standard for uncomplicated i think i would say reincarnation cases oh uh, yeah that's true that's a, yeah that's across the board that's 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 true for everybody who remembers yeah. past life to have gender dysphoria and a past life memory is it's just so much more difficult and so much more complicated and layered. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, children with past life memories fall into two categories. One category, they know, they understand what happened. They will say, when I was big, they will say, you know, in my life before, right? They'll say, I have my mother from one town and I have my mother from the other town, right? One of them being in reference to the past life. They know it was in the past. The other group of kids are, they are not sure who they are because they have this other identity alive in them enough 
to think that's who I still am. And they'll insist my name is such and such, the past life name, instead of the name their current life parents gave them. And sometimes the parents will humor them and say, okay, that's what you want to be called, sure. Um, so that, for instance, happened to Shanti Devi, very famous case from the 20s. And she was confused. She was like, who am I? I don't understand who I am. I tell people that I'm married and I have kids. And they say, no, you're just a little girl. And I don't understand because I'm married and I have kids. I know I am. I remember it. Yes. Right. So they don't know that it's in the past. Now, Shanti Debbie, you know, eventually she figured it out. You know, once she got old enough to understand, she figured it out. And that's true of another case that I've done recently for the Science Encyclopedia, which was Sunita Chandak, uh, also of India. She was confused at first, but eventually you know, got my so-and-so mother and I've got my so-and-so mother and, and I get along with both families and I feel more like the one when I'm the one with the one family and I feel more like the other when I'm with the other family and I know what it all is about and it's all cool, right? <laughs> so if you are confused, then the gender dysphoria is going to be part of the confusion. Okay. They're kind of intertwined, you mean? Yes, because your gender identity is part of your identity. Yeah. Right? It's part of who you know yourself or think yourself to be. You know this because you, as you've said, you have it. For you, um, they're not two separate problems. It's kind of like it's all one, the same, one and the same. Okay. There's how you look at yourself and then there's how the rest of the world looks at you. Right? And gender nonconformity, as we were saying earlier, up until relatively recently, uh, was going to get you in trouble with your parents or with, you know, people were going to be confused or contemptuous or think you're a pervert. So you had memories when you were younger and you also had gender dysphoria. So which did your parents struggle with the most? Which one did they find the hardest to deal with? Um, my past life memories. Really? Yes, because I drew pictures of battles and spear battles. As soon as I could hold a pencil or a crayon, I drew very violent, gory stuff. And if you're an atheist materialist mother, what do you do with that? <laughs> right? And so she did things to suppress it, including destroying the drawings. I wish I still had every single one of them. There are hundreds of them. That's a shame, isn't it? Because they were all different scenes. And that was very, very harmful to me because, you know, she didn't understand that what she was destroying was a record of me. Yeah. She thought it was some kind of craziness that had to be rooted out of me. And as um, Erica Aubrey made the point, what she was teaching you was that you couldn't go to her, that you couldn't trust her. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I felt exiled from humanity. Yeah. Oh, I think of this poor little girl who just feels so isolated. I felt absolutely isolated from everybody and very worthless. I felt that I was worthless and I felt that my work was worthless because I had, you know, done all this work and it had been destroyed. Yeah. I oh. have done a lot of healing work and I am very much over it now. Not but entirely, but very much. So given that, given that it is so difficult because you've got not only the problem of, you know, having the memories and so you're doubting what you remember, but people are telling you you can't be like this is who you are. Is there an increased suicide rate or is there more of a, a rate of people having mental um, issues because of it? That hasn't been studied as far as I could tell. But I mean, here's the problem. If somebody has that kind of double whammy okay my quote quote past life trauma actually is kind of untypical it's this life trauma about a past life it's not past life trauma it's this life trauma about a past life it's more typical for people to have past life trauma like bad things that happened to them in a past life like scott perry for instance yeah they'll have a trauma about right. what happened in their past life whereas you that's right feel more trauma because of the way you were treated in this life because of your past life exactly 
Exactly. And so I think you're actually talking more about the more typical pattern, which is it's a past life trauma that they're trying to deal with. But what I was going to say is the trouble is we will have lost the people who could have told us the answer to this probably when they were teenagers. Oh, that's very sad. Or before they talked about it because we're talking suicide rates. You can't do a study on suicide rates by interviewing the relevant people unless they come back in another life or unless you hold a seance, right? I think it probably is, and I'm just saying that based on some people I know who talk about having suicidal ideation and having the urge, but very speculative, hasn't been studied. Um, to me, it just stands to reason the more bad stuff that happens to you, the more you're going to be depressed and, <clears throat> and think maybe, you know, the way out of this is to go to another life. Here's the thing. And this is what I want to say to everybody who's considering suicide. Death does not end all cares. They can continue right into your next life. Know that for a fact. Good do that. your healing work in this life it's true death does not end all cares you know you just need to look at those 2500 cases i heard a documentary once where the guy said that we think we're going to have a wonderful time when we go on holiday because we're going to do this wonderful stuff but we forget that when we go on holiday we actually take ourselves and it's the same thing that's right. with reincarnation that's right because there isn't necessarily a total reset it's not you aren't necessarily going to forget everything you're still going to have aspects of that personality that you had in the past life. Absolutely. Be, I don't have any memory, so I can't say who I was in the past, but I imagine that I'm roughly similar in a lot of ways to who I was. Well, Will has memories going back literally thousands of years to early ancient Egypt. Wow. And, and he will say, people don't change. You know, I liked beer back then. I think the Egyptians invented beer. Or maybe they didn't invent it. Maybe it was just popular there. Right? He says, I like beer now. <laughs> and, you know, he was a German, right? He, he Yeah, every Oktoberfest, you know. I, I mean, I'm saying that one sort of jokingly, but he's the same in a lot of other ways, too. You know, like I see him making the same kinds of decisions. And uh, one of my past lives goes back a long way, too. And I, I'm very different very different life very different circumstances but there's you know same personality in a lot of ways i'm glad to hear that so, i'm creative and i'd love to be creative in the next life but um, well there you go you will <laughs> i hope so but yeah i can imagine because to me when you look at, at life generally i tend to kind of keep in my head that this is an incarnation this is part of the long cycle that we've done and therefore the things I learned from this life are also evolving my consciousness. And I think that's the same mm -hmm. for all of us. It's just a long, slow arc. It takes us sort of, instead of we think it's over one lifetime, but in actual fact, this is just a blip on what we've learned over the course of thousands of years. Well, sure. And I mean, this is why I'm saying that, you know, do your healing work in this life, like do it now because, you know, you want to lessen the degree of emotional charge you have inside you based on all your past life traumas so that you don't take them into the next life because otherwise you will. You know, that's more about healing than learning, but it is learning in a sense because you're learning things that overcome the delusions that cause the pain, right? Whatever you made the thing mean that happens to you. With regards to your experiences then, have, given that you've come into this life and you feel this gender dysphoria do you think that in the next life you will probably go back towards being a man that's what i want that's what i want to do yeah now that's interesting it's, isn't it it's uh, now i would say you know the people who say the purpose of reincarnation is to learn it's a big schoolroom. i think that is the case for some people who choose it i don't think it's mandatory and i think some don't i think some degenerate I've got to agree with you. When you look at what we've experienced in this life with COVID and with the things that have happened in the last couple of years, it's been a very tumultuous couple of years as far as humankind is concerned. 
I've got to say that I've seen the best of humankind come out and I've seen the worst of humankind yes. come out. People are like tea bags. Did you know that? You want to see what's really in them? You put them in hot water. Yeah, yeah, that's very true, isn't it? If you are a parent and you do notice that your child is demonstrating gender dysphoria and or reincarnation memories, what can they do to help their child through it? That is two questions. And so I'll take them one at a time. Gender dysphoria, just accept them for who they are. Just accept them for who they are. And if they want to transition, help them, let them. Um, I mean, the big concern that people have about transitioning, usually from the outside, is that it is irreversible. It's a one-way street. You can't take it back. So, you know, the concern is, does this person really want this? Or is it just a whim? Is it just something that they're going to have today and change their mind about tomorrow? And I think that parents are going to be able to tell the difference. If a child really, really wants something, really feels something, they will say it and they will say it again and they will say it again and it'll come up in different aspects of their lives. They'll want to wear male clothes if they're an XX or the other way around. And they'll say, I, when I grow up, I want to be a soldier. I want to go out there and fight and I want guns. And I'm pulling these examples, by the way, from Tanang, you know, you know, they will show that it is a big deal for them. Kids on whims, they have a whim and then they have another whim in another five minutes, right? You know, they just, right? They go through their kicks. It's a little bit like with the reincarnation memories, if the child is consistently and constantly saying the same thing and not varying right. from it, it's a fair bet right. that they genuinely feel it. Yeah. This is parenting today. I met these, these people who I knew and they had a new baby and I said, boy or girl, and they said, well, the baby is going to tell us the pronouns when the baby is old enough. Wow. But for now, from what we can tell, he's a he. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. that is, they're saying, I will love this child no matter what that child wants to be. That's good advice across the board. Love, love, and love some more. That's a solution to every problem with the kids. As you say, like, um, it's two separate issues, but it's not really. It's the same with reincarnation. If your child is showing these traits or showing, talking about this, just accept them, listen to them. Reincarnation memories can be very different in kids, right? So sometimes the kids are matter of fact, right? Like, oh, yeah, and then I died and, and blah, 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 right? Um, other times they can be absolutely traumatized. So say with Shanti Devi, not a lot of trauma there. She wasn't having nightmares. James Leininger, and this is another one of these cases that I quote all the time. It's, it's like Tinamyo. He's, there's so many aspects to James's case, uh, but he was having screaming nightmares three to five nights a week. So it, it depends, right? Like sometimes the kid kind of needs therapy by the parents in real time, right then and there. Mm. If they're upset enough, if they're terrified enough. And what they need to see is that they're no longer in the trauma. The trauma is no longer happening. It's in the past, right? So if you can say to them, no, you're okay, you're safe. It's now. That was back then. That was a long time ago. And it's over. You're with me. Everything's fine. That helps. Whereas when the child is not traumatized, then you don't have to do that. I suggest to people that you don't ridicule. Don't say, oh, that's not true. Because it might be from a past life, right? I have a bit of a different opinion than Jim does. He thinks that parents shouldn't encourage past life memories. He thinks that they shouldn't um, ask a lot of questions. I'm all in favor of a lot of questions. Because I think if a child doesn't want to answer questions, they'll just change the subject or they'll ignore you or they'll tell you, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> so, you know, if you ask questions, it, it does show that you believe the child. 
and that you're interested. There are a lot of children who clam right up because the parents aren't interested. You know, it's like, oh, that's nice, dear. Here's your other toy because they're uncomfortable with it. It's a little scary. I mean, if you're not hip to reincarnation, it's a little scary if a kid says, oh, I remember when, you know, you were, you were the little girl and I was the mom. And, or, or I remember, you know, dying in a plane crash. Um, if you think that's not possible, you know, it can be disturbing. I think you're right. I think actually there's a good middle ground between yours and Jim's um, viewpoint. And that is basically if the child wants to talk about it, then talk about it. If the child wants to let it go, then let it go, perhaps. Yeah, let the child lead. Absolutely. Let the child lead. Yeah. And if you are going to ask questions, uh, make sure they're not leading questions. Yes. You know, when you start to ask questions, then you're then you're being your own you know, amateur at home reincarnation researcher, right? So you don't want to ask questions that lead them to particular answers. If you can avoid yes or no questions, then that's what you want to do. So we accept with reincarnation that when we come back, we come back as any human life. And of course, that means we can come back to any different gender or anything. But right. not everybody who comes back has gender dysphoria. Why do you That's think right. some people do have gender dysphoria and others have memories without having any kind of gender issues? Right. Yes, that's actually a difficult question. There is one easy answer to it, and that has to do with the age they were at the point that they died. Okay. Because what they have found and I'm trying to remember which paper or where this came from. I'd have to talk to Jim about it. But a person who died in the prime of life, so between puberty and the fading off of, you know, menopause for women and the kind of fading off for men, right? So when they're most procreative, right? If you die in that point, you're more likely to have gender nonconformity or gender dysphoria. Wow, right? that's really interesting. So, say, so for example, Scott Perry, right? He doesn't have a problem with gender at all. That's he right. died in his past life when he was six, when she was six. Right. right? Whereas, well, go to Ting Angyo as our example again, yet again, <laughs> she's wonderful. She was, he was in the prime of life you know, five kids and, and he died. Yeah. Um, and I died in the prime of life too, in my best remembered past life. So it certainly depends on that. What else it depends on? I really don't know what other factors there are. I don't know. That is an interesting one though, because really what you're talking about is from the period almost then of you're saying basically puberty until say menopause or Sexual decline, even though it's not about sex, I think it is the right. time when we identify most strongly with our lives. I'm sure that's it. That's when we feel most intensely male or most intensely female. I mean, for me, feeling intensely female with all those hormones going around when I was pregnant and nursing, um, it cured me <laughs> temporarily. I felt so female, right? Yeah. So, so maybe if I'd happened to die in that point, I wouldn't have had any problems being a woman in my next. I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting <laughs> question, isn't it? Point. That would have been bad. That would have been very bad. My poor little son, right? But oh, exactly. Of course, <laughs> poor little fella. Not not having a mum would have been a bit rough. I think that's basically pretty much all I needed to ask you. The only thing I was going to ask, which we've kind of already covered, but. How best can we accept and support people who have gender dysphoria and or reincarnation memories? And, and is there anything that you would like to sort of say about gender dysphoria? Um, accept them the way they are and believe what they say. Yeah. That's it, basically. There's a part that I wouldn't mind you cutting into my answer to the question about parents and how they should approach kids with one or the other or both. And that is that they should read a book by Carol Bowman that's called Children's Past Lives. 
because she has a lot of very good advice in there about dealing with kids with past lives in particular and gender dysphoria to some degree too. Okay, that's really good you advice know. actually. Carol's amazing. She does incredible work with healing. I think she uses regression, but she uses it more for the healing side of it, doesn't she? Yes. She's not so much a reincarnation researcher per se. She's more like a reincarnation healer. So she takes that approach in the book. You know, here's how to help your child get through whatever they're suffering if they're suffering. So she was the one who came up with the four signs for determining whether it's past life memory or just whim, fantasy, you know, lots of other good stuff in there. She's amazing, I've got to say. I will actually link some of her titles in the Facebook page when I post this episode so that people can find her books. And I'm pretty sure you'd find her pretty much anywhere to buy her books on Amazon or Booktopia or any of those places. But um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an amazing episode and I think it's raised some really important questions. I really appreciate you coming on. Well, I really appreciate you having me and I've, I've had a wonderful time doing this. So to pick up the last little bits of Tin Ong Mio's memories, Tin Ong Mio couldn't remember the name of the Japanese cook that she remembered being. With regard to her already mentioned fear of planes, this was demonstrated strongly one day when a helicopter landed in a field nearby the village. Most of the other villagers went out to see this unusual spectacle, but Ting Ong Mio fled back into the house, crying and frightened. As we've mentioned, Ting Ong Mio felt a great homesickness for Japan and would cry for this place that she'd never been to, but she also appeared to miss her children from her past life. She spoke of it so often her family nicknamed her Japan Gai, which loosely translates to Japanese guy. K.M. mentioned that Ting Ong Mio spoke to other children in a language that they didn't understand. Her mother said she hadn't been able to speak Burmese normally until the age of five. When it came to bodily functions, Ting Ong Mio didn't begin menstruating until she was 15, and the average age for Burmese girls is around 13, so she was a little late. And she had dysmenorrhea, or extremely painful periods, that persisted into her adulthood. She hated her periods and said that they were unbecoming for a man. KM and I didn't really touch on this subject, except for KM describing her brief period of joy at becoming pregnant, giving birth and nursing. But other friends I have who have gender dysphoria have described feelings of being extremely uncomfortable with bodily functions that relate to the gender of the body they're inhabiting. And Ting Ong Mio's account is a perfect example of that sort of feeling that they describe. Originally, when she was born, the baby was simply called Ting Ong, which is a name that can be used by either gender. But as she aged, Ting Ong added Mio to make her name more masculine, and she would become very annoyed with her sisters if they persisted in calling her simply Tin Ong. And finally, Tin Ong Mio was said to have a birthmark in her infancy that later disappeared. Tin Ong Mio's mother, Ai Tin, told Ian Stevenson, that she noticed the marks on one of the baby's thighs immediately after the birth. Her older sister confirmed that she had seen it too. The lesion took the form of a sore that covered her groin area and the baby would try and scratch it. It didn't heal until Tin Ong Mio was two or three years old. It was a brownish patch about the size of a thumb, approximately an inch to an inch and a half, and was directly over the baby's sex organs. A village elder also saw the mark and confirmed this description. And this is an interesting note, because when the Japanese soldier was killed, he'd been standing near a woodpile, around 75 metres from the house, as KM mentioned, and he was about to begin cooking. He'd stripped his shirt off and the plane strafed with machine gun bullets. He ran around the side of the woodpile, but one of the bullets hit him in the groin, and he died immediately and the mark described by the family matched the location of the bullet injury to the groin that the Japanese soldier sustained. When asked why she considered herself masculine, Ting Ong Mio offered up three different speculations over the years. Initially she said it was because she'd been shot in the groin when she was the Japanese cook. Two years later she wondered if the Japanese soldier had wanted a sex change. 
a year after that she suggested that perhaps he'd molested girls and being a girl in her next life was a punishment however as stevenson pointed out the latter two explanations were often used by the burmese in answer to such questions and therefore couldn't be taken as a genuine memory and were perhaps more related to cultural beliefs as in many cultures as k m mentioned being born female in burma particularly at that time would have been viewed as a demotion as burmese women were considered inferior back then k m mentioned that she wasn't sure all cases of gender dysphoria can be related to reincarnation and stevenson also made this point he reminds us that biological factors are found in some cases but as K.M. writes on Science Encyclopedia, parental influence seems unlikely in cases where the child rejects his or her anatomical sex at a very early age and where the parents have shown no sign of exerting pressure. So, at the age of 19, Tin Ong Myo told Stevenson that she had forgotten a lot of her past life memories now, but she knew of them because of the family relating what she'd told them. She had largely lost her phobia of planes by her late teens, but she would remain nervous of them, which admittedly was better than the immobilising terror that she experienced as a child. She gradually adapted to Burmese food and grew more tolerant of the heat, although she still didn't like it and she would visit her sister in the cooler uplands for relief. The one thing that didn't change was her transgenderism. She continued to dress as a man, and she would completely reject a female honorific, becoming sad if she received a letter with the female honorific Ma. She adopted the honorific Mong, which is the male honorific similar to the Western Master, or she would call herself Tin Ong Myo. Tin Ong Myo determined never to marry, and her mother accepted this. She expressed a great desire that she would return to being male in her next life, and when Stevenson expressed incredulity at her continuing to associate as a male, she answered that he could kill her by any means he chose under the condition that she be reborn as a boy. Stevenson rather dryly commented later that he and his fellow researchers had no wish to carry out the first of her stipulations and no power to implement the second. The last that Stevenson heard about her case was when she was 28. She was living in a village with another woman and was still acting as masculine as before. And finally, while KM has past life memories, she's not yet ready to discuss them in public. And I wanted to respect that and not lead her in directions where she may feel uncomfortable or forced to discuss topics she wasn't yet ready to discuss. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them and I can be contacted through my email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or via my Facebook page called Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. If you'd like to support me, I have a Patreon account. I don't do extra content, but your support helps me to keep the wheels on the reincarnation wagon and lets me keep doing what I hope you love hearing. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose.